First John 1, 8 through 10 is where we're going to be in our foundations discussion, uh, talking about the foundational beliefs that we have as a church. What are our core beliefs that we're building on, that God's going to build on? Uh, if we don't have a foundational structure, then we're not building anything that'll last, right? So we need to make sure that we have core, um, identifiable, clear, uh, biblical truths that, that God is building on top of uh, so that, that we're being a part of something that will not fail or cease to exist in eternity, right? Um, so anybody remember the first two things we've talked about? Week one was... I'm not asking you the entire belief statement, but do you remember the general topic that we hit on week one? The Bible, yeah. God, self-revelation. We see the big picture through the scriptures. It is God revealing himself to us. Uh, so that's where we uh, go to as our source of truth. The Bible is our ultimate authority uh, when it comes to understanding God ourselves in the world. Week two, anybody? That was last week, in case you... Man, I got to do better at teaching, I guess. Uh, God. Yeah, last week we talked about God. God is creator in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, Holy, and full of grace. Right? So we're talking about who is God. God is one creator of all, made known through the person, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He is completely holy, yet full of grace. Okay? So today, we're talking about something else. But I want to give you three words. Three words. Lunatic, liar, and Lord. Some of you may have heard this quote, but lunatic, liar, and Lord. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and in that has become a pretty well-known quote that I'm going to read to you. Did we get that one found on the screen? No, I didn't give it to you. Okay, so listen closely. Attune your ears and create mental pictures so that you can follow me, right? So C.S. Lewis says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, a liar. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. Those are the three options. Uh, I want to give you three more words. 
that we're going to work with this morning. Sin, Jesus, and salvation. Three more words for us this morning. And as C.S. Lewis presents, um, when it comes to Jesus, and I think even comes to the sin and salvation, and C.S. Lewis presents, the existence of these names or words does not clarify anything. Doesn't clarify anything, because everybody has their own definition of what these words mean or mean to them. So saying the word, saying the name, doesn't mean much. We must determine who or what they are in order to determine who we are. Right? So um, only when we determine what sin and salvation and who Jesus is and define that clearly will we begin to know who we are both as individuals and as a church um, so read with me 1st John chapter 1 and we're going to follow a train of thought that John the author of this letter has concerning Jesus I got a Bible in my backpack you know, I try to remember things and I just don't sometimes. Anybody else like me? <laughs> yes. Did I even remember to put it in the backpack? Okay, because I got most of my scripture here and we'll make it work either way, right? Oh, yeah. Big pocket. So John chapter 1. Or 1 John chapter 1. Don't confuse that with John chapter 1. John is, the book of John is the gospel of John recounting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 1 John is a letter to the church. Uh, it's very much shorter. If you want to be proud of yourself, read 1 John. You can read it all in one sitting and feel like you accomplished something. So, 1 John chapter 1. Verse 8 through 10, John says this. If we claim we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Um, so we started back to school week and a half ago, and back to school means back to hygiene for kids, okay? So if you have kids, you understand what this means, um, and if you remember being a kid, maybe in the summertime you didn't take as many showers, bad thing is you got a lot dirtier, but back to school means back to hygiene, and the nightly conversation that goes like this with four different kids, especially Brant and Micah, go take a shower. Uh, I had one yesterday. I don't need one. Um, first of all, kid, you smell, you stink, um, so you by saying you don't need one, you're calling me a liar. Uh, second of all, I know you smell yourself, so you're lying to yourself as well, because as bad as you stink, I know for a fact you smell yourself. Go take a shower. Nope, don't need one. So you're calling me a liar and you're lying to yourself. And that's the exact sentiment that John's talking about in 1 John chapter 1. 
He says, the man who says, I have no sin, number one, is lying to himself. Number two, he's calling God a liar. The man who says, I have no sin, lies to himself and calls God a liar. But that doesn't even tell us much until we define what sin is and begin to operate from a biblical viewpoint there and understand what God's trying to tell us. So sin, our working definition today that comes from the original language and what they actually meant, sin is failing to hit the target. Failing to hit the target or same thing, missing the mark. It also has with it, it is an error needing restitution. It's not the fact that you just missed the mark, but by missing the mark, you have committed an error that needs to be dealt with and restituted. It needs to be that needs to have closure brought to it. Somebody has to pay for it. Somebody needs to deal with it. It's not just oops, but it's oops, and now somebody's got to pay for it. This is sin. It's missing the mark. There was a target set, and we missed it. Uh, so in week one, when we were talking about the Bible being God's ultimate revelation, we read in the book of Timothy where Paul told Timothy, all scripture is useful for four things. Now, I don't assume you're going to remember these four things, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Does anybody remember the four things that all scripture is useful for? Teaching what? What is true? You got the first word. Good job. Teaching what is true. Anybody remember the second thing? Uh, it is revealing what is wrong. And that's a natural byproduct of understanding what's true. When you understand what's true, you look around and say, oh, something's wrong. Because it's not in sync with that. Revealing uh, what is wrong. Anybody know the third one? Because I don't remember, I got to look at my notes. Uh, not only does it reveal what's wrong, it corrects when wrong. It doesn't just say, here's where you're at fault, but it gives you correction. It doesn't leave you hopeless or frustrated, it brings correction where we're wrong, and then it moves us ahead, leading in what is right. Okay? So the four things the Bible does for us, according to Paul, it teaches us what is true, therefore revealing what is wrong, doesn't leave us, but it corrects us when we're wrong, and then it leads us to do and engage in what is right. That is the process that we expect as we engage with the scriptures. Um, so, to back up to what we were talking about just a second ago, and say if sin is failing to hit the target, then what is 
the true target that Scripture has given us to hit in the first place. Okay? We have to answer that. If we're going to say that was sin or this was sin, we first have to know what the target was to know if we missed it. Okay? So what is the true target? It's going to teach us what is true. Out of teaching us what is true, we identify the target. Anybody know that target, like their sign, is a target? Like two years ago. It's like, wow, that's a bullseye. I had no idea. Sorry. These guys that do marketing, they're just brilliant, aren't they? They're just brilliant. Okay, so what is our truth? What is our target? It is found in Genesis 1, 26. When God says, let us make man in our own image. From Genesis 1, 26, we know the target that we've been given as humans, as people, as, as children of God. We were each created to be like God, displaying his character in every way. Okay? Your target, my target, the common target, be like God, displaying his character in every way and every area of our life. That was why you were created. That was how you were created. That was when God spoke us into existence, he said, I want humanity to be like me. And by setting us up in his creation, therefore we become a picture of the person of God, displaying constantly the character of God, and even through our life and actions, bringing glory to God. That is our target. That's our purpose. That's the mark that we've been given. Which brings a question for us to discuss. Give me some characteristics of God. What, what are some uh, descriptions of the character of God? Who do we see Him to be? You can make assumptions based upon what you think about God, or you can say, I have biblical background to, to help me know that this is an attribute of God's character. So give me a list. What, what characteristics describe God? Holy. Holy means morally pure, faultless, and unlike any other. If he is holy, that means there's no one else like him. Funny thing was, we were created to be like him, but that would mean that if we're not like him, we are unholy. Just free lesson there. What else? Character of God. Because the scripture actually says God is love. Very directly tells us that. So he's loving. What else? Shout it out. God is forgiving. Okay, keep it going. Sovereign. 
That means he is in complete control of all things. God is a king, and all creation is his kingdom. That's why when you open up the book of Genesis and it says, God said, and it was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an expanse between this and that, and there was land, there was sky. Because when a king speaks, his kingdom obeys and does exactly what he has spoken, and they make it his reality. So God is, from page one of the scriptures, he is a sovereign king, and the world is his kingdom. Okay? So what else? Patient. I need, I'm going to test you. I need three more. Put the dots down so we got to put the words down. So. Zealous. What word does that rhyme with? Jealous. Give me your definition of zealous so we're all working for the same. I know exactly what you mean, but I just want to make sure everybody else in here understands where we're going with that one. Okay. There you go. What else? I got two more dots. We got to fill them. I can't back up. That would be missing the mark. <laughs> okay. So he's keeping no record of wrong. He is... Uh, what was that? Forgiving. Okay. Patient. I'm going to give you give you one. That would work. Gracious. That goes along with keeping no record of wrong. So he's gracious. He, in his graciousness, he extends gift and favor that you don't deserve. Right. He's generous with himself and generous with his gifts to where he would bestow them upon us when we don't deserve them. Okay. Also just. That means everything he does is right. It's like justice, not just us, but justice. Right? When justice is done, what is right and correct has been accomplished and everything God does is right and correct. He is just. So... I am. I don't know if we can display that in our being like him because I am because he said I am. <laughs> I'm going to veto that one. Oh, I'm sorry, but it is good. Um, so here we go. Here we go. Let me connect some dots for you. Genesis 1 6. Let us create man in our own image in order to display his character in everything. And then we say that is the direction in which we were shot. So therefore this is our target. That is the mark which we were created to hit. That we are to be completely holy, completely loving, completely patient, completely just, forgiving, 
submissive to his sovereignty, zealous for his good. Remember when Jesus comes through the temple turning over tables? That was just because he was zealous for the name of his father. And then we have completely gracious. Now here we go. And I'm going to make an assumption based upon this list that there is nobody in this county who would uh, deny the existence of sin if this is the measurement for which we call sin. Right? Nobody in our county would say, sin does not exist in my life. I am completely holy. I am 100% of the time completely loving, full of grace, 100% patient, and everything I've ever done, every decision I've ever made was completely correct and just. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody's going to say, I hit the mark. Because if this is the measurement, it's obvious that each and every one of us and everybody you know and come in contact with has missed that mark. So the question that we end up with is John, he says, if we say that we have no sin, number one, we're lying to ourselves and we're calling God a liar at the same time. But if I just said, if what I said is true, that we would all agree upon this as a measurement, then are we falling into that trap? The problem I believe that exists is not that we deny the existence of sin, but that we Minimize it or disguise it. That's the trap I believe we fall into. That we minimize sin. It's not that big a deal. It's just normal. Right? Everybody does that. Or we disguise it and we call it something that it's not. We call it common sense. We call it natural. We call it protecting myself. Right? So I don't think that we walk around saying, I am 100% walking in the character of God. I think we say, we minimize and we disguise it. So let me ask you a question based upon that. Why might people disguise or minimize the sin in their lives? Why do you think we would do that? Why do we think we would mentally or vocally minimize or disguise the sin that is in our life? Okay. So, don't have to change. If I minimize it or disguise it, then I don't have to deal with it and actually be different. Okay, what else? Okay, so if I minimize or disguise, then I can actually suppress the guilt and the shame from surfacing, right? Is that what you're, okay? Okay, what else? Why do we minimize or disguise sin? Um, I'm going to say we uh, 
this is not me personally, but I'm going to say, generally speaking, in our culture and in our community, that many people would minimize or disguise it because we don't think there's really any consequences for it. I mean, just our, our worldview and our belief system doesn't have any weight upon sin because when there's no consequence for sin, then there's no weight to sin. And if I don't believe there's a judgment and I don't believe in the holiness of God, if I don't believe in all those things, then who cares? I can minimize sin because my belief system, my worldview doesn't have any weight to it. There's no consequence. Anything else while we might minimize or disguise Let me give you one more. Comparison. I can minimize my own sin because I'm not comparing myself to the character of God found in the scripture. I'm comparing myself to Mike. And I feel good when I do that. It's like when I feel bad, the one thing I should do is get up and go to Walmart and just look around. Because if you feel bad about yourself and you go to Walmart and look around, you feel good about yourself when you leave. You're like, dang, dude, I actually put shoes on and not just house slippers. I feel good about myself now. And when I begin to look in the mirror and I begin to consider all the areas of sin in my life, and instead of looking at the character of God, I look at the character of Mike, and I have relief. And it's just a comparison game. I'm better than they are, so I'm okay better than they are, so I'm okay. Right? So I can minimize or I can disguise it. <sighs> yeah. And then I begin to believe what they're saying instead of believing what God said. I'm trying to hit Joe's mark, not God's mark. Let's just drop the bar a little bit. Were you created to hit Joe's mark or were you created to hit God's mark? So this is why we minimize and discuss and this is how we do it. I don't think anybody would walk in this room from this county and say, I have no sin based upon this measurement, but I do believe that all of us fall into this trap from one time or another and we just minimize or disguise it. So if that was the truth, then the question is what went wrong, right? So if teaching what's true, revealing what's wrong, the next logical question is what went wrong? And as I asked this question this week, I just thought this was really interesting, so I'm going to take you on a little ride. Shelly and I, over the past summer, have made just maximize the potential of our summer, and we watched the entire office from season one to season nine. We just, I mean, we made the most out of the summer. We watched the entire thing. We'd never seen an episode before, and now we've seen it all. And I'm going to tell you, we're maximizing the end of our summer, and we started Parks and Rec. And I didn't laugh until midway through the second season. I don't know why I made it midway through the second season if I didn't laugh until then. But we're trying to maximize our summer. And in light of having finished all that, 
You've got all these co-workers and you go out for an evening on the town with your co-workers, right? So you're, you're in this co-worker environment, you're having a night on the town, the night's going awesome, everybody's having a good time, the just mood of the room is just good. So I ask you a question. What could you do to immediately kill the mood and take the wind out of that room? Just have fun with me for a second. Night on the town with the co-workers, everything's going great. What could you do that would immediately kill the mood and take the wind out of that room? Don't be too serious with me. Just have fun with this. There you go. Minimize what they thought was hilarious and just... I didn't think it was funny. Now, I didn't think it was funny for three seasons, and then I found myself laughing. So I would almost agree with you. What could you do to take the mood out of that room? Come on. Pick a fight. Right? You can pick a fight with a coworker, you can pick a fight with the guy at the bar, you can pick a fight with somebody, right? But stir up a little bit of trouble. Remember Sam and Tyler, we were at the ball game? Good night, everybody's having fun, kids are catching foul balls. We're, the guy in front of us is banging on the bleachers, hey, just doing what baseball stuff does, and the drunk guy next to us picked a fight because he was being too loud at a baseball game. Killed the mood, took the wind out of the whole section of seats. Because one drunk wanted to pick a fight with one guy that was having more fun than he was. It was baseball. But, pick a fight, kill the mood, steal the wind out of the room. What else? Stephen, what do you got? How do you kill the mood? <laughs> you don't know? I thought of one. Maybe this is the way my brain works, but I'm like, somebody passes gas. It's just the way my brain works. Everybody's having fun. Who did that? Smelt it, you dealt it, right? I mean, it's just, you can take the wind out of the room by putting wind into the room. Derek's like, where is this going? The next thing you can do, maybe the most effective thing you can do to kill that moment, mention the name of Jesus. Mention the name of Jesus. And I think there's something here that indicates what's gone wrong. Because I think, what, like C.S. Lewis said, I think the... the the, the mentality towards the concept of Jesus is generally positive. No matter who you are, where you come from, if you ask people or if you were to be able to look in people's brain, they're like, yeah, Jesus, that's cool. Yeah, he's cool. Because you compartmentalize him into whatever Jesus you want him to be. Good moral teacher, yeah. Or maybe, yeah, like a hippie dude, and I really relate to him because he didn't have a home and he was traveling and just living off the land and people, yeah, I can really identify. And, and, and you've got your own comfortable Jesus in your brain. The, the concept of Jesus may be generally positive, but the mention of Jesus in everyday spaces creates discomfort. And I think that's true a lot of times. 
conceptually, I'm okay with Jesus. But when Jesus is mentioned in the context of an everyday scenario, sometimes he creates discomfort. The concept of him is okay. It's palatable. But the mention of him in everyday spaces can be a little bit uncomfortable. So, I have a question. What might it be, what might it say about our religious mentality if Jesus' name creates discomfort? What might it say about the religious mentality of our culture if that's true, that the name of Jesus creates a level of discomfort? What do you think that says about our religious mentality? Oh, Jesus is equals mood killer. <laughs> Jesus didn't have fun, doesn't want you to have fun. Right? I've got fun me and then faith me. But those two are not compatible because Jesus exists to kill your mood. I think that's an underlying mentality that exists in our culture. I think it is. And I was reading, doing my chapter a day, truth a day, prayer a day out of the Gospel of John this week. And you know what I ran to in John chapter 2? There was a party. You know who got invited to the party? Jesus and his disciples. So that concept that exists, that Jesus over here, fun over here, they don't, they don't mesh well. It wasn't true in John chapter 2. There was a party going on. Jesus and his disciples were invited and they were a part of it. Looked like he was having fun to me. The better one. What else? What else does it say about our religious mentality? Yep. And, and that's why it ruins the fun. Because there's so many rules attached to the person of Jesus that who on earth could be a follower of him and still enjoy life? girls that do right but I mean that it's an underlying mentality that exists in our religious culture that we equate Jesus with rules we equate Jesus with no fun and his rules are going to actually keep us from having fun so I think there's just a religious mentality that I think there is some truth to that going on but think about this in John, 1 John 1, 5, before we got to what we just read, he said, this is the message we've heard for you and declare to you that God is light. That's what John says when he opens up his letter. I declare to you that God is light. But if I go back to the gospel of John, 
Remember what we're reading through in our own time. In chapter 3, he makes another statement that correlates to this statement. Same author, talking about the same Jesus. So everything that John writes fits with everything else that John writes. And it, it becomes really seamless when you read all this stuff. So in John 3, verse 19, he goes on to say that the light has come into the world. God is light and the light came into the world through who? The person of Jesus. God came into the world through the person of Jesus. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. God is light and light has come into the world, but people love the darkness because their deeds are evil. So, when Jesus enters the conversation, everybody's having a good time, Jesus enters the conversation, people expect correction to follow. People expect correction to follow and it becomes uncomfortable and because we dislike being corrected, we avoid the light so that we can avoid how we've missed the mark. Lights come into the world. I don't want to talk about the light. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I want to think about Jesus because I assume that if Mike brings up Jesus, the next thing Mike's going to do is he's going to correct me. He's going to point out all my flaws. He's going to make me feel bad about myself. That's the only reason Jesus is brought up. And because I don't like standing in the light and recognizing how I've missed the mark, we're just going to avoid the concept of Jesus because it makes me uncomfortable because all those other things come along with it. Right? Well, I just got quiet. It's so good. But this doesn't seem to be the Jesus in Scripture. This doesn't seem to be the same Jesus in Scripture. Because if we continue in John chapter 3 to verse, or actually back up to the, the two verses before, and we read in John 3, 17, it says, God did not send His Son into the world. He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So God is light, and light has come into the world through the person of Jesus, not for the purpose of creating rules, restrictions, and condemnation. That is not why Jesus enters the conversation. Jesus enters the world and the conversation not to condemn, but to save. God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but, so the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Jesus doesn't enter the world or the conversation to bring condemnation, his rules and restrictions to increase your guilt, your shame, your fear, and your frustration. Not why he does that. He enters the conversation so that you would not be condemned, but that you might be saved. But he says if you avoid him, you're already condemned. 
you're already condemned because by avoiding him, you're avoiding that he is the one and only son of God. So here's kind of final thought on that. It is not those who are exposed. The one who says, I have no sin. They're lying to themselves, calling God a liar because they don't want all this stuff to happen. It's not those who are exposed in their sin who are condemned, but condemnation comes through those who minimize and disguise their sin. It's, it, it's really interesting that you, you, you claim not to have sin. You minimize it. You disguise it so you don't have to deal with it because you think if you deal with it, you'll be condemned for it. But Jesus comes with the opposite mentality. He says, if you'll confess it, if you will stop minimizing it, stop disguising it, call it what I call it, and let's bring it out into the open so that it can be revealed. He says, I won't condemn you, but I'll save you. But if you say, no, not me. No, not me. That's not me. He says, you're already condemned. You're already condemned. So you're bringing on your own condemnation. Jesus does not do that. Because God is light and the light has come into the world not to condemn the world but to save the world. And the only people who are condemned are those who do not walk into the light. You condemn yourself by your own unbelief and your own will, unwillingness to call it what it is. So I have a we believe statement this morning concerning sin, Jesus, and salvation. And it was really long, so I'm not going to write it. Stephen so graciously typed it. You can't deal with those three words without having something long. So here we go. We believe that everyone everywhere has sinned and is thus separated from God now and forever. But because of God's love, he came to us in the person of Jesus not to condemn, but to save us by living a sinless life and dying a sinner's death on our behalf. God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. And now, all who trust in this Jesus can be saved from sin's consequence and live in God's presence now and forever, increasingly displaying the character of God as they walk in the light. You could study that and diagnose that for a long time. But that's what we believe about sin, Jesus, and salvation. So the question that it remains is, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do with this? We invite God in to help us see as He sees. We invite Him in. Holy Spirit, you're welcome right here to come in and reveal so that I can see as you see. And, and I want you to come reveal where I have missed the mark, where my character is not in line with your character. We invite God in. Everything that's not in line with, with his character, we're going to begin to call it sin and not something else. That's what we do. Invite God in. Ask Him to reveal these things. Then begin to call it what He calls it. He calls it sin. Your unforgiveness, it's sin. 
our lack of patience, it's sin. Our zealousness for the wrong things, it's, it's, it's sin. We're going to see it as He sees it. We're going to call it what He calls it. And in response, we're not going to suppress it. We're not going to minimize it. We're not going to disguise it. But we're going to put it out. We're going to put it out there and we're going to call upon the person of Jesus to deal with it. That's what we do. In response to this message about sin, Jesus, and salvation, we invite Him in ask Him to reveal, we call it what He calls it, and then instead of closing it off and suppressing it, we put it out there. Because it's not those who are revealed who are condemned. That is a lie of Satan that keeps you from entering into your salvation. can't let this be known, because if I let this known, I'm going to be condemned. But the truth of Jesus says, no, those who are revealed are saved. We're going to set it out. This is sin. Calling on Jesus to deal with it. He's not going to condemn me, but He's going to save me. That's our response. That's our response. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. Not condemned. So that's our response to the gospel of Jesus. Invite Him in. Ask Him to reveal what He sees. Let's call it as He calls it. We're going to put it out there for Jesus to deal with, for Him to forgive, for Him. Those, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I step into the light and I begin to walk with Jesus, the character of God will be reshaped and I will be remade in His image increasingly day after day until we walk into eternity in His presence and it is fully restored and you are a new creation. This is our salvation. So Stephen's going to come lead us in a time And in this time, I'm just asking you to invite God into wherever you're at. I assume that there have been some things going around your mind and God's stirring in your spirit as we talk about these things. And there's some things that you just want to suppress. You're like, no, I don't want to deal with that today. I don't want to to vocalize that to God or to others today. I'd rather just disguise it and go on. I'd rather just compare myself to Mike instead of the character of God. So in this time, we're just inviting you to invite God in to help you see as He sees it and not to suppress it, but to confess it so that you might be forgiven and cleansed by the person of Jesus. There is no condemnation in the gospel. There is no condemnation, only forgiveness. I invite you to do that. He's just going to lead us in a time... We just ask you to spend some time in prayer, spend some time meditating on what God's saying to you right now. And then just respond faithfully. Those who are exposed are not condemned. It's those who refuse 
to let God expose you. Those are the ones who receive condemnation because you refuse the one and only Son of God. Spend some time inviting God in, praying, letting Him reveal, and see as He sees.